Will you turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3? Galatians chapter 3. Today is the second of two messages related to Christmas, but these messages are from passages that explain what the Lord's coming accomplished. Last week, we saw from Romans chapter 3 that God came to earth to obtain salvation for all who believe. This morning, we're going to be looking at Galatians 4 in just a bit. We'll start in Galatians 3, and we're going to see additional aspects of that salvation. Now, we have an outline for you each week for the message. For those of you who are here in the auditorium, those are uh, at the main entrance when you came in. If you want to fetch one of those, if you didn't see it when you came in, and those who are watching on live stream under or next to your media player, there is an outline button. And then... Uh, uh, next week, we're going to have an end-of-year, beginning of 2021 message, and then two weeks from today, we're going to start a series in the book of Proverbs. So just so you all know where we're headed over the next few weeks. Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic monk, priest, and professor of theology at the university in Wittenberg, Germany. In his work there, he began to study in depth the teachings of Scripture about how we enter into a relationship with God. In particular, he focused on the New Testament books of Romans and Galatians. In both, he read a phrase that kept recurring in his mind, and he, he simply could not shake it. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The phrase was seared in his conscience, and he began to be troubled at how it conflicted with the religious system in which he had been reared and which he now served in official capacity. He had been taught that we gain our standing with God by what we do. And yet as he studied the Word of God in Romans and Galatians, he found it to be just the opposite. Our relationship with God is not a matter of what we do, but rather of what Christ has done. In fact, even the, the law of God that he gave to Moses, the most perfect list of rules that could be devised because it came from God himself, even that law could not make us acceptable for, before God because no one could keep it. And so Galatians 3, to which I've asked you to turn, verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So then why did God give his law, his list of rules, if it's not the way for us to have a relationship with him? The Bible says he did it to show us our need for Christ. Since we cannot keep the law because of our sin, we then need someone perfect who can. We saw in Romans chapter 3 last week, the Bible says this, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So why did Jesus come? Why is there a Christmas to celebrate his coming? Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And our passage this morning in Galatians chapter 4 shows the extraordinary links to which God has gone to accomplish what we could not. Let's bow now 
and ask the Lord to help us as we look at his word together. Father, again, we thank you for allowing us to gather in person, to be before you by live stream and have your word open before us, and to be instructed there for the reason for which God the Son came to earth. We ask you, Lord, to help us as we think about his first coming in this Christmas season, to think about the profound reasons for which you executed that marvelous plan and the great benefits that accrue to those who believe in him. We commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now chapter 4. If you'll take a look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. Verse 4 says, When the set time had fully come, God sent his Son. And I say in your outline that God prepared the world for Christ. The time of that first Christmas was, verse 4 says, set in the mind of God in eternity past. And it came about at the precise moment that he had planned. And in the millennia that had preceded it, God was at work in the affairs of his world to ready his world for Christ's first coming. He prepared it, I say in your outline, three ways. He prepared the world, first of all, religiously. He prepared it religiously in a handful of ways. One of those is by providing the scriptures, the scriptures of the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. God preserved his word that predicted the coming of the one on whom he would, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, lay the iniquity of us all. Now the language of the Old Testament, Hebrew, over time came into disuse And therefore, a translation of it into the language of the day was needed. And about 250 years before the birth of Christ, the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, which we will see had become the most widely used language of Jesus' day, Greek. In fact, most of the direct citations of the Old Testament in the New Testament come from this Greek translation not the Hebrew Bible. In cases where the Old Testament is cited in the New Testament word for word, the New Testament writers quote this Greek translation called the Septuagint. They quote it over the Hebrew approximately 75% of the time. So God prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah religiously by providing a translation of his word in the language of the day. He also did so by the development of the synagogue system, the synagogue system. In 586 B.C., the Babylonians destroyed Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and took the Jews captive for 70 years. It was the destruction of the temple that created the need then for a place and an opportunity to meet for teaching. It's also true that prior to and during and after that Babylonian captivity, Jews were scattered over the Mediterranean world. It's called the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. And now that they were all over the world, they need some place where they can gather and meet together. And so in the dispersion, these synagogues began to develop. Any town that had at least 10 Jewish men could have a synagogue. By the time you get to the life of Jesus, there are synagogues everywhere Galilee, in Judea, all over the Mediterranean world. 
which gave Jesus then a ready-made place to go and to teach and to make his claim to be the Messiah predicted in the first part of the Bible, as he did, for example, in Luke chapter 4. And then God had prepared the world religiously as well by creating in the hearts of people a messianic hope a desire to see the one who has been promised come and become more intense. Judaism was bankrupt. Paganism had always been bankrupt. Rome, which gave men universal empire, could not give them universal salvation. And as a result, there was this messianic hope, this expectation, this desire that was rampant. Many people were thinking about the coming of the Messiah. Even the philosopher Plato, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, had written that the Savior who came to the world would have to start with clean canvas. And the first thing he would have to do would be to take all the children out of the homes in which they were being raised because of the corruption of the homes in his day. So everything was prepared for the coming of the Messianic King. God prepared the world for Christ. He prepared it religiously, and I say in your outline, he prepared it culturally. Alexander the Great, prior to the coming of Christ, but after the end of the Old Testament, there's about a 400-year period in between, and during that period, Alexander the Great made his conquests. He conquered much of the world in a short time, dying at the age of just 33, lamenting that there are no more worlds to conquer. As many of you learned in Dr. Combs' just-completed course called Between the, the Testaments, Alexander's schoolmaster was none other than the great philosopher Aristotle. He, Alexander, carried with him on his military campaigns Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey, and he sought to establish Hellenism, that is, Greek culture, throughout his empire. And as a result of Alexander's exploits, this Greek language that I mentioned earlier, into which the Old Testament in about 250 B.C. had been translated. This Greek language became the common language of the empire. It was the language of commerce, of culture, and philosophy, and it was the language that your New Testament was written in so it could be read and understood by all literate people. The particular form of Greek that became the lingua franca of that, of that time the common language. The particular form is called koine, common Greek, as opposed to classical Greek, and that's what our New Testament was written in, common Greek. And though Greece was known for its famous philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, that philosophy did not satisfy the longing of the human heart. We see in our New Testament a time in Acts chapter 17 in the ministry of the Apostle Paul, where Paul goes to Athens, Greece, the philosophical capital of the ancient world. And he has a, a discourse, but then he proclaims Christ to those Athenian philosophers. So God prepared the world for Christ. He prepared the world religiously, he did so culturally, and he did it politically as well. The political power at the time that Jesus came was none other than Rome and the Roman Empire. But the Roman Empire did some things that actually facilitated the transmission, distribution of the, the gospel message. One of those was what's called in Latin the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. 
because of its military might, no one dared mess with Rome. And so as a result, there was a tranquility. There was a, there was a peace throughout the world. Rome had united the East and the West. And their government, this empire, was on a universal scale such had never been seen before. And it made it possible for the gospel to go forward with freedom that never would have been possible in other times. And not only did the Roman Empire give this, this tranquility, this, this peace of Rome, but they developed an amazing road system that evangelists for the gospel could use in order to disseminate the gospel. An elaborate transportation system was constructed by the Romans. Five main highways led from Rome to different points of the ancient world. When you, when you visit Europe today, you can travel on some of those Roman roads from over 2,000 years ago. And again, this allowed the dissemination of the gospel. Now consider this. If the Lord had come 100 years before he did, then Rome would not have at that time been in control of Palestine. If he had come 100 years later than he did, Israel would no longer have had control of their land. Jerusalem was subsequently destroyed in A.D. 70. But when he did come, both were there. When the time was right, and the Gentile Romans and the Jewish Israelites conspired together to do what God had foreordained, they crucified him. But in so doing, they accomplished God's plan of redemption through their plans of treachery. Jesus came at the time set by God the Father. And many years later, a, a scribe included these three influences in a verse that appears in the King James Version this way. As Jesus is on the cross, you may remember that they put a, a sign above him that said this is the king of the Jews. But here's what that scribe said. A superscription was written over him in letters of, notice, Greek, that cultural influence, and the letters of Latin, representing Rome and the political influence, and Hebrew, representing Judaism and the religious influence. A superscription was written over him in Greek and Latin and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. God prepared the world for Christ. And, I say in your outline, Christ became man for us. Christ became man for us. Verse 4 again. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Now notice it does not say he sent his child. He sent, and the word that is used there, the Greek word that's translated son, is specifically for a son, not just a child. And the fact that he is called son is not an accident. Even in the Old Testament prediction of the coming of the Messiah, about 700 years before he came, in the prophet Isaiah, it says famously, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Notice it makes the distinction. Yes, this one is going to come as a child, but this child is actually going to be the son who is given. Jesus was born as a child in his human nature, but he existed before that. He was given as the pre-existing son. And that's because, as I say in your outline, Christ is God. 
Now, we too often get the idea that Jesus came into existence at his birth in Bethlehem, or that, that God had a, had a baby and that was the beginning of Christ's existence. But the truth is, he's existed from all eternity because he is God. What we celebrate at Christmas is not the beginning of his existence, rather it's the beginning of his mission, a mission to carry out what we're going to see in just a bit. The Bible is explicit that he is God. In John's Gospel, famously the Bible says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So whoever this Word is, the Bible is very clear, the Word was God. Then goes on to say, the Word became flesh. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. This one who was God becoming flesh, adding to what he has always been throughout eternity now, humanity, flesh, and he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. In our passage in verse 4, the Son is sent, now notice, sent and then born. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, and then it says born. He sent and, this, and then born. And that's why Jesus would speak in language like, I came forth from my father. Nobody says that. We say when we came into existence, we say I was born on. But Jesus says, I came forth from my father. Why? Because he existed before being born. Christ became man for us so that Jesus could be, I say in your outline, our substitute. So Christ became man. He had to become man because for all eternity he is God. But he became man for a purpose. He is our substitute. Now, Christ is his title. We will say, and the Bible will refer to Christ, sometimes Jesus, sometimes Jesus Christ, sometimes Christ Jesus. And we easily get those mixed up. Most often we talk about Jesus Christ, and so we think, since we have a, a first name, and then we have a surname, a first name and a last name, well then, his first name is Jesus, and his last name is Christ. And he came, must have come from the Christ family. He was named after the Christ family. When in fact, sometimes the Bible says Jesus is the Christ. Because Jesus is his name and Christ is his title. And Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, the, the anointed one. The one who was to be God with us, predicted in the first part of the Bible. So, Isaiah chapter 7, the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, his name, as we know in the New Testament, was Jesus for reasons that we saw last week. But this Emmanuel is not a name, but a descriptor. And it means, as we'll see in a bit, from, or, or Matthew tells us, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, interprets this word Emmanuel. It means God with us. So Jesus is his given human name, meaning, as we saw last week, that God saves. And that's why I have point A as this way, Christ is God. 
I don't say Jesus is God, although that would, be, that would be correct too, but I'm just trying to make the distinction. Christ is God, Christ the anointed one, this one who was sent, this one who had pre-existence. Christ is God. And then B, Jesus is our substitute. Because he, Christ, the one who had existed from all eternity, became man, did so for the purpose of substituting for us in ways that we'll describe in a, in a bit. But he did that in his humanity. Jesus is our substitute. So verse 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent his son, and then says, born of a woman. And that's signifying for us, when it says born of a woman, that Jesus is not only fully God, but he is fully man. He is fully human. He is in one unique person, the God-man. Fully God, fully man in one person, but he is human, and that's why this passage emphasizes born of a woman. Now notice, you normally wouldn't say that either. <laughs> just like Jesus would say, I came forth from my father, you don't normally talk that way, you just say I was born, that's because he had this pre-existence. You don't normally say born of a, a man and a woman. You know, how did you come into existence? You know, I was born of a man and a woman. <laughs> but here it says explicitly, Born of, so one, to make clear, he was born as a human, but born in particular of a woman, no man, no male, no Joseph involved. Why? It's a virgin conception. It's a miraculous conception. Now, immediately when you think of that, over the years when I've gone through this, and we say, you know, born of a woman, and so the vir miraculous virgin conception and therefore, Jesus, unlike everybody else who's born of woman and man, does not have a sin nature. And immediately, the women all see, ha, ah, I knew it. <laughs> the sin nature comes through the guys. <laughs> if it wasn't for those guys, there would, be no, there would be no sin nature. Well, not so fast, ladies. It's not that the men are responsible for the transmission of the sin nature. The sin nature is transmitted by the combination of the male and the female. And that was interrupted miraculously in the virgin conception. We most often talk about the virgin birth, but it's really a virgin conception. In that conception conceived within Mary by the Holy Spirit. It was necessary that he be born into the human race so that he could have an organic unity with the human race in order to be our full substitute. It was necessary that he be part of the human race in order to represent us in as we will see his life and his death that means that every part of his humanity was real humanity every piece of it and if it were anything less than full humanity then he could not fully substitute for us he could not fully represent us now he was fully like us made like us in every way the writer of hebrews says yet without sin but otherwise he's fully human we think, you know, you can't really be human if you don't have sin because every human we know sins. But remember, there was a time in the existence of humanity when there was no sin. Genesis chapter 1, we were not created with sin. And there will be a time when there will be full humanity without sin. And Jesus was fully human, but yet without sin. He was fully human in every aspect of his humanity, including things like his blood. His blood was human blood. He shed human blood 
on behalf of humans. Now, I, I emphasize that just as what may be an aside for many of you, but some of you may know that a debate raged, especially a few, uh, several years ago, about whether or not the blood of Christ, and there are many good people who believe this, but it's false. This idea that Jesus' blood is not real human blood. It's God blood. It's divine blood. I have a book called The Chemistry of the Blood by M.R. DeHaan. Some of you know the DeHaan family. They uh, radio Bible class, Day of Discovery. Um, what's the little booklet? Our Daily Bread. Those are all helpful things. And the DeHaans are, are great people. And M.R. DeHaan was the, um, he was the elder of the family, now with the Lord. But he wrote this book called The Chemistry of the Blood, and he claimed in that book that Jesus' blood was not real human blood. Listen, his entire humanity, his entire physical body and spirit were human, and they had to be in order for him to be our substitute. And the Bible emphasizes that what he did, he did for us on our behalf, in our place. For example, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He's substituting for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Isaiah chapter 53, that passage about the suffering servant who would come, the Messiah, it says that it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to lay upon him the iniquity of us all. He took upon himself our sin. He substituted in his death for us. That's why the Bible can say Christ died for our sins. So he's our substitute. In order to be our substitute, he had to be fully human, and he substituted for us in a couple of ways. One is in his life. Verse 4 says this, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, and then it says, born under the law. And this is, him being born under the law, is about him substituting for us in his life. Not just his death, but in his life. It emphasizes here, born under the law, because Jesus came into the world under the law from which he is going to redeem us, as we'll see in verse 5. And he did that by perfectly fulfilling all that was demanded by the law. We've already seen from Galatians chapter 3 that I read at the beginning, no one will be justified before God by keeping the law. No one ever did, no one ever could. But now has come one who not only can, but he did. He perfectly fulfilled all that was demanded by the law. When he was born eight days later in Keeping with the law, his parents took him to the temple for his circumcision. In his life, growing up, in every aspect, he kept God's, God's law. We find him, according to Luke, at the temple at the age of 12, being, quote, about my father's business. Now, many years later, Jewish boys and girls were formerly, and still are, formerly made sons and daughters of the law at their bar and bat mitzvahs, respectively. Bar mitzvah means son of the law, and when one is 12, under Jewish custom, they become a son of the law, and they have their son of the law ceremony. 
daughters, bat mitzvahs, same way. So Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. I say that, I pray that very often, but it's not just the slogan, friends. This is the heart of the gospel message, that Christ not only died for us, but he actually lived for us as well. And it's because of that perfectly righteous life that we can have what we saw last week. God can declare those of us who are not righteous to be righteous because he looks at us through our substitute, the perfectly righteous, Jesus. So he's our substitute in life and, of course, our substitute in death. By paying the penalty that was ours due to our having broken the law, a penalty now has to be paid. So it's not only that we need perfect righteousness, fulfill the law, Jesus did that for us, but we also have to have the penalty paid for our failing to have done that. Again, Galatians 3.10 that we saw earlier, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So who can withstand that standard? That would be none of us. Now notice I've got the word curse emphasized for you, highlighted there. Because three verses later in verse 13, it says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Now notice that last phrase, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole, it's in quotation marks. It's a quotation from the first part of your Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 23. In the Old Testament, criminals were executed normally by stoning and then displayed on a stake or a post to show God's divine rejection of them. And when Christ was crucified, it was evidence that he had come under the curse of God for us. He had taken that curse upon himself. Christ's death paid the penalty that was ours. And if we refuse, friends, to receive the payment he made, then we will make that payment ourselves forever in hell. God prepared the world for Christ. Christ became man for us, and Jesus Christ grants freedom to us. Christ is God, Jesus is human, and the unique God-man, Christ Jesus, accomplishes several things in his life and death on earth. One is, I say in your outline, we are free now from the law. Your passage, beginning in verse 4, says this, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do this, to redeem those under the law. And we saw that word redemption last week from Romans chapter 3, but I remind you, when a slave was purchased, that is, redeemed on the open market, ownership was transferred from one master to another. And the law here is presented as a tyrannical master that holds one in, in bondage. But when we come to Christ, we're redeemed, we're purchased, and we now come under the mastery of another, namely the Lord himself. The law is, is bondage in that the law is a constant reminder of our sin and our failure to measure up to God's standard. The law represents the ultimate guilt trip. 
Because you constantly have it before you, and you can't keep it, and you can never get there. And Martin Luther found that. We recognize that no matter what we do, we cannot meet the standard. Some of you are familiar with John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. In it, you have a character named, named Christian. And Christian is attempting on his, on his pilgrimage. He's attempting to ascend what's called the Hill of Difficulty. But as he tries to ascend the Hill of Difficulty, he keeps encountering someone who keeps knocking him down who keeps knocking him back, and that one is Moses, representing the law that God gave through Moses, and would continually knock him back, and it's not until he encounters one who shows him mercy that he's able to, that he's able to get there. In living and dying for us, Jesus Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because he kept it in his life, and he redeemed us from the bondage of the law, the despair that we suffer at our inability to keep it. And when we're redeemed by Christ, we come under ownership of a new master who, unlike the old one, is loving. And that's why Jesus said this of himself. When he walked the earth, and he would encounter the Jewish religious leaders who were meticulous about keeping the law, and that Jesus said, you heap great burdens upon others. But Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, unlike the yoke of the law, unlike the yoke of religion that constantly says, do more, do more, do more, Jesus says, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Why? Because he took it for us. And he gives us the benefits of that. There are lyrics to a song that capture this so well. It says, To be so completely guilty and given over to despair and to look into your judge's face and see a Savior there. What a beautiful thing. Guilty despairing look into the one who could judge us for eternity but to see our savior there he grants us freedom we're free from the law and i say in your outline we are free from our alienation our alienation our separation from god the passage says again verse 4 God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So here we are, the Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, we are children of wrath. We are separated from God and when we come into this world. But Christ has freed us from that alienation, from that separation. We now have a legal relationship with God. The Bible uses the term adoption. In the Roman Empire, they had a process of adoption similar to ours. Sometimes a, a wealthy but childless slave owner would adopt one of his slaves. The slave would then become his legal son with all the rights and privileges of sonship, including inheritance. And that's what the Bible is saying God has done for us. Adopted us into his, into his family, and he has given us all the rights and privileges of being his son and daughter, including being an heir 
The end of verse 7 says, inheritance. Friends, do we understand the great undeserved privilege that it is to be a child of God? We are born again, and then we are adopted into a new, into a new family. One Bible writer, in speaking of the fact that we are children of God, could barely contain his excitement. The Apostle John said this in 1 John 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. Notice the exclamation point. And then John adds, and that is in fact what we are. It's not just the title, it's not just the theological concept. In fact, we are the children of God in His family, part of the family of God, His children. He's our Father, and we are brothers and sisters in the same family and with the Lord Jesus. So our alienation has ended, our separation has ended, we have a legal relationship with God, and we have an intimate relationship with God. Verse 6 says, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you were no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. We have the direct presence of God in all of His children. In all of His children. That's one of the major benefits of what's called in the Bible the New Covenant. And we receive the salvific, the salvation benefits of the, what the Old Testament called the New Covenant ratified in Jesus, who the night before he was crucified said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And everyone who is in that new covenant because of relationship with Jesus Christ is given his Holy Spirit. In the first part of your Bible, people had the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we get that wrong. We think that that's a new thing in the New Testament for folks to have the Holy Spirit. No, they had the Holy Spirit. People who were saved in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit. Here's the difference. Not everyone under the Old Covenant had the Holy Spirit. It was available to those who were saved, but not everybody in the Old Covenant was saved. Everybody in the New Covenant is saved. <laughs> in fact, by definition, you enter the New Covenant by that salvation. And when you do, you are given the Spirit of God. All of His children, everyone in the New Covenant, via the Holy Spirit, has God's presence every moment of every day. And we have the right then to come to Him as His sons and daughters, to Him as our Father. Now friends, the fact that God went to such lengths shows that in fact we could not do it. And further, God takes great offense at our attempt to try to do it, to recommend ourselves to Him, to come up with some other scheme whereby we can stand before God and be right with God. God did all of this, and then we're going to come along and say that doesn't quite cut it? And we're going to add something to it? We're going to have our own list of rules to keep? to attempt to present our goodness, our good works, anything that we do as the means to make up for our sins and create a relationship with God is to say that what God has done is insufficient or somehow incomplete. But friends, God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and He offers His work to you absolutely without cost 
freely by His grace. So as I prayed at the beginning of our time together, it's my hope that we that know the Lord and have this marvelous relationship would have a renewed focus upon the privilege that it is to be a son or daughter of God and rejoice in that at this Christmas season. But also, that any who do not know God through Jesus Christ, any who believe that somehow, some way, they're going to stand before God and say, I've been a relatively good guy or gal, that you would see it does not happen that way. It happens through Jesus. And the best gift you have offered to you at this Christmas is Jesus. The gift of God, the Bible says, is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to pray in just a moment. When we pray, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, anyone in this room, anyone walking, watching on live stream, you realize you're a sinner. All of this stuff God had to do coming to earth as man was all because all of us are sinners. We can't do it. Recognize that Christ died for your sins. Prior to that death, he lived for you. Then he died for you, and that death was fully acceptable to God the Father because it was preceded by a perfect life of keeping God's law that no one else could do. And so you repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you with my life. I'm going to go your way, not my way. When we pray, you say to God in your own words, from your heart to him, Lord, I am this sinner. I believe that Jesus is the answer to my sin, the only answer to my sin. And with the empty hands of faith, I come to you bringing only my sin, and I receive the gift of eternal life that he offers. Here's your take-home truth. At Christmas, we should remember that God sovereignly accomplished the work of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we again thank you for this Lord's Day, and we thank you for this special Lord's Day as we focus our minds and hearts upon the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We who know him look forward to his promised second coming. But Lord, we thank you that when he came the first time, he did what had been predicted in the first part of your word, and he fulfilled everything that needed to happen in order for us to have a relationship with you. Thank you for his life. Thank you for his death. Thank you for God, the Holy Spirit, at a point in time, moving upon the hearts of all who have come to you to draw them to yourself. Thank you for doing that for me at the age of 19. And Lord, we would ask you in this sacred moment to do the same now for others. Some in this room, some who are watching us on the internet, Move upon their hearts. Cause them to see that this is the good news of the gospel. Christ has done it. And we celebrate all that you orchestrated to make that possible at this Christmas season. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.